What's up? You are now listening to Americanized, a storytelling podcast where you'll hear from eclectic first and second generation Americans share their stories and real life experiences as children of immigrants. I'm your host, Rosin Clairou. Welcome to episode two of The COVID Files. This is a series featuring low-quality audio but high-quality conversations that were recorded during the summer of 2020. In this episode, you'll hear from Heather Asante Anderson, a first-generation Ghanaian-American who is studying to become a doctor. We went to college together and met in the Bible study group on campus, which she took over during our junior or senior years. Heather is a woman of strength, perseverance, and resilience. As I mentioned, she's currently in medical school, continuing her journey of becoming Dr. Heather Anderson. She speaks on her love for Ghanaian music, God, and medicine. So my name is Heather Anderson. Grew up in Queens, my background. I would call myself more African-American. Both of my parents are Ghanaian, and you know they came over here like the late '90s. So I would say I still have close connections to my Ghanaian roots, but I'm still like Americanized as well. Um, I'm interested in anything that's you know Ghanaian, Afro, African in general too. Um, dancing, music, and also interest in you know Bible study because that's how we connected. It keeps me grounded, and also medicine. I'm studying right well, I'm, right now, I'm just doing some clinical experience, hopefully to go into like medical school and stuff like that, because I feel like the minority community kind of needs those advocates specifically in the hospitals, clinics, and urgent care facilities. So that's where my interest lies, like all over, but it's still academic, non-academic, and just fellowshipping with others. That's wonderful. So Heather, Heather is from Queens, New York, and as I mentioned, we did attend college together. And thinking about my college experience with her and now knowing where she comes from, this segment of her speaking on her upbringing in Queens and then attending a white college in Western Massachusetts makes a lot of sense. Thinking about how they passed, we were really just the... Like we were like the chocolate chips just sprinkled. Yeah, that's what it was definitely. And that's the first thing my parents noticed when they dropped me off from school too. And I would say I never had an issue with race specifically. Growing up in New York, specifically in Queens, is very diverse. So I was never the only black girl. Obviously when I went to school, when I went to school in mass, I assumed that I was gonna be the only black girl. Because in high school, specifically junior high school, I would say, like when we had, like, you know, the honors classes and stuff like that, I realized there was less and less minorities. So I realized that in the higher level classes, the minorities got smaller. So I was like, okay, I've kind of, so I kind of experienced it a little bit being like the only black girl. And I had some teachers that would say, have, go to heaven. Like they would say, who's heaven? And they always go to the white girls. And I'm like, oh, that's me. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like I'm over here, oh. and I would say not once did it ever hurt my feelings or anything mm-hmm. like that because my parents raised me in a strong African American household. They taught me my roots. They taught me the culture. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of pride in being black. You know, if you want to get real simple, just being black. 
Right. So that never hurt my feelings. Um, some of, one of my friends told me in junior high school how the teacher was like, why can't you be more like Heather? Because she's similar to the other white kids. She's, she gets good grades. She's respectful. And when my friend told me that, I was kind of hurt. I was like, what do you mean I'm like the other white kid? Right. What do you mean I'm smart? And why does smart have to be associated with being white? Mm-hmm. So I would say like that part, I was like, oh, okay. I'm just doing the best that, that I can. My dad always said, set the bar. Don't try and reach the bar that others set for you, but reach the bar that you set for yourself. So like he said, be the best you can, not what others want you to be. So I've lived by that every day of my life, even when I was young. So at Bay Path, I saw that we were definitely the raisins. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to explode. In a sense, they wanted to explode the raisins because they, in a way, I feel like in any field you go to, you feel more comfortable when you see someone that looks like you. So when they're advertising students that look that, that are us, they want to attract students that look like us. But we can't put a facade to it when students come in. They see that there's not a lot of people that look like them. And that's why we have problems. So hopefully they figure out that in the next couple of months, years. I know it's going to take time, but representation is extremely important in minority communities because in a way, in order for someone to really be honest with you, they have to feel comfortable. And I see that in academics, and I also see that in the medical field. Some Blacks won't tell the doctor everything. While if I'm in the room, they feel comfortable that if she's in that position with the doctor, I can tell her a little bit more because she understands. You don't want to feel judged. You never want to feel judged when you're sharing information. So it's like little things that I pull from school experiences and I pull from, you know, medical experience. I know, Rosalind, you have so many experiences that you can pull and you you kind of see it, you kind of notate it in your head and you're like, okay, how can we make this better? Great, exactly. Afrobeats and West African music is inescapable when living in an African household. This is something that Heather related to when I asked her, where did her strong interest in Afrobeats start? I think it started specifically from my dad, because growing up, we were always listening to like the old school African music, Kanye music, Daddy Mumba and stuff like that. So that's where it came from. And then I would say in like high school, yeah, high school, junior high school, that's when like Osanto came super big. And that's when I was like, oh, I, I really wanted to embrace my African roots even more because I was like, the dancing and the music just, it just hit me a certain way. And it just gets me so excited when I hear it. I, like, you just feel it throughout your whole body. And it's nice to see that now Afrobeats is becoming mainstream. Um, but I personally always want to keep connected to my Ghanaian roots. I kind of never want to lose that, even though I feel like I am Americanized. I still want to keep that. Um, intertwined in my lifestyle all the time. So definitely at a young age with my dad introducing me to the music and stuff like that kept me going. And I love what you said, how like it just hits your body and there's so much energy in it. Exactly, mm-hmm. yes. So every time you hear the beat, no matter how old the song is, it still excites me the same way, whether it's like Sakodia or anything like that. Like anything Afrobeats, I love. Sakodia, Bisa Katie are probably my top artists. When it comes to Kanye music, but then again, I'll listen to anything from T on T Savage, you know, to techno. I can listen to all of them. My mom, she's yeah. been blasting like a lot of African music lately. 
<laughs> and it's like the same songs that she listens to. It's so funny. <laughs> I know. Sometimes like you get so compulsive that mm-hmm. if I found one good song, I can really like listen to it every day, morning and night, for like a solid few weeks until I find something new. It's mm-hmm. like a, it could be a bad habit. It's just like you get obsessed with it. Yeah, and it's not like anything bad. It's it's all positive and it keeps you white. Exactly. As I mentioned, Heather took over the Bible study club on campus. I asked her what inspired her to do so. I think it was because I felt as though if there wasn't anybody else that was as, I guess, invested, involved, and hungry to keep it going, it probably would have never still been a, been a thing all the way up to my senior year. Because I was in Bible study towards... I would say the spring semester in my senior year. No, spring semester of my freshman year, sorry. And it was a senior who I believe was in Patricia. She was in her last year of the OT program. They, they were very open. So the initial one, I believe, yes, yeah, so it was Chelsea, then it was Patricia. Both were in the OT program and they're extremely nice, supportive. They had the blue, the blue Bible study prints. So that's what I kind of, I kind of used and continued on to junior, and then also until senior year, I kind of switched it because I said I don't want to keep it the same. And I saw that you guys wanted different things. You guys wanted music, so luckily one of my residents, um, Genevieve, she was so amazing. She did the singing for everybody, and it was good to have praise during Bible study. And I think that's something that we're lacking. That was a great thing that she had because I don't think I have the most amazing voice and. I love to play music on the side, but I think when everyone is singing together, it just it just made it a lot more, a lot more personal, and and I guess you can say holy in a sense that everyone's really trying and was open. So I felt like I had to keep that going, but still add my little twist on it because I felt like each Bible study leader at the time of their section added their own twist. You know, whether they had like weekly sessions. Whether they had like we had a Facebook group at the time, so people would post ideas there too. But I felt like I just needed to because the Bible study group really helped keep me grounded my freshman year because I had really nobody. I came to a state where I literally knew nobody. I never been to Massachusetts a day in my life, so the club was great to build those friendships, and they kind of motivated me to start new clubs. So it wasn't just a Bible study. To me, it was really like a sisterhood. That's how it felt, at least in the beginning for me. And I hope others felt the same after. Mm-hmm, definitely. I'm so glad you did carry that on. I was there. I remember it with Patricia. Yeah, those days. Those yeah, days. I believe Patricia was like the second, the second leader at the time. Because the original was Chelsea, and she's the sweetest girl I remember. And like now she's married. And I'm just, and she finished her OT program. She's working. And I'm just like, yeah. And I remember how she used to stress about it. But she always said, you know, God's going to make a way. He didn't bring me this far to leave. She was, she was the type of person, if she was going through something, she spoke so highly about the situation and she was smiling that I was like, how could you be so happy? Right. She was one of those girls. And she would be going through something and she's still smiling. It was just amazing. Mm-hmm. That's really inspiring. Yes. To see that. I hope it continues on. on. Well, we don't know what it's going to look like, but I hope it, they do something. Yeah, I hope it continues. And 
even let's say it's people don't want to continue it on for a year or something, God will put the, you know, that energy into someone's heart, mm-hmm. that will to push through and then reinstate the club again, you know? Yeah. And it's so necessary. I like that you said it's like a sisterhood. Even though Bay Path is an all-women's campus, it lacks that. It does. Oddly enough, and Bible like, Club really, really did that. Yes. Thank you for carrying that on. No problem. Like, you guys kept coming, you know? You yeah, can't have true. a Bible study with just one person. That's In this segment, Heather shares her journey to the medical field. And at the time that this episode was recorded, Heather was a medical scribe. And now, in less than two years, she is now in medical school. All right, so I would say starting off in high school, I was in the medical assisting. I would say, you know, kind of like the beginning stages of the medical assistant program, almost like the tester class specifically because we didn't have the certification for it. And I knew I had an interest in medicine. I just didn't know how far I wanted to go. So I did that at Thomas Edison Vocational School. So we had a bunch of different trades like automotive. Um, I believe Photoshop was another thing for them. Welding was another one as well. So we we're the only science-based one at the time specifically for clinical studies. And it was great to have experience specifically at that school because it gave us internship opportunities. And of course, you know how you have people from different specialties come in. That's what my um, teacher did as well. So we have people who are PAs, I think we have one doctor, and then people who are in the medical assistant program senior year. And they talk about how the program itself helped them to get more exposure if they really wanted to do medicine in the long run. Because being a medical assistant, we do a lot of hands-on procedure, whether it's phlebotomy, EKG. It could be administrative as well, or it could be, like, insurance-based when it comes to, like, billing, working in a private practice. So as a medical assistant, when I was taking the class, I was like, this is great, but I wanted to do more. Because I realized you did have some restrictions on what you couldn't do. Like, you couldn't treat the patient the way you wanted to because it was the job of the PA or the doctor who kind of took the lead in that patient's um, care. So when we talked to some of the PAs, they said how they like the two-year program and you get to change from specialty to specialty. So I thought I could use medical assistant as a way of just getting that clinical experience because a lot of these, I would say higher level sciences, you need that hands-on patient contact hours. So as a medical assistant, that's kind of where you got it from. So with that, when I went into college at Bay Path, I was going to do pre-PA, but when I was talking to a lot of my professors, I was majoring in bio, I said, you know what, I should switch to just pre-med, you know, still focus in bio, but instead of pre-PA, switch to pre-med, focusing in bio, because I knew I wanted to be a physician, but I was going to do PA first, then be a physician, but um, Dr. Kong, my organic teacher said, you know, if you really want it, just go for it, like, what is stopping you, and I realized that it was just the fear of the unknown, because I have nobody in my family that's really a doctor. I have no one that's really in medicine or who who have gotten this far in the academic realm. So it was just a lot of my own insecurities. So I had to do a lot more research. I had to ask a lot more questions, make a lot more mistakes. I relied on Khan Academy, YouTube, bloggers, medical people online, and some friends from other schools to kind of 
gauge their interests. Because yes, we had our own um, counselors at BayPath, but certain things they didn't know. So I relied on the internships at Holyoke Medical Center and Bay State, where I shuttle an oncology specialist. And she was telling me about how she has some ties to the medical schools in New York, how their system works, how I need to get more research opportunities. So that kind of gave me more of the confidence because I, you know, I got a mentorship and, you know, they shine light on what I really needed to do because I knew that I, I could be a great applicant, but I wanted to know, like, what more because, you know, thousands and thousands of people are applying at the same time. So that was really helpful for me. And I knew that it was going to be a long road and I have a dedicated dedication for it. And I don't mind volunteering my time as well because majority of your time in medicine becoming a physician requires volunteering. So if you can't get that point of just pushing through volunteering, it's going to be hard because you're not going to really make good money at the end if you're just struggling to push through. So if you have a good heart and good passion for it, the journey becomes a lot easier, you know? So for me, that's kind of, my journey, and right now I'm a medical scribe at CityMD, and even though, you know, COVID is going on, especially in the beginning stages around, I would say, February and March, they relied heavily on the medical scribes. Like, we really saw people in the earlier stages with the symptoms who were traveling from France, certain areas of China, South Korea, and we had to assess them and work with the CDC. We also had special emails all the time, and I was like, wow, like, this is how it is to work in the medical field during a pandemic. And I was like, whew, you know, I could see how flustered some of the doctors would get, but I also saw how motivated and strong they were because I worked in Manhattan and I worked in Queens. Manhattan, yes, we saw a lot of international um, patients because we are, we're near the UN, but in Queens, we worked with a lot of the minority underserved communities because majority of them didn't have insurance. So a lot of the things we were telling them about how to monitor their symptoms, how to check temperatures, what does a pulse oxygen saturation mean? They had no idea. So we had to do a little bit more education, a little bit more about what their symptoms were, how different it can be from one another, and how self-isolation was important. So I knew for myself that I really want to help my community because they may not have the same outlets as other communities, you know, in the Lower East Side may have where I was working. So that's just a little bit of me. That's really amazing. Thank you. Like from where you started to where you are now, especially during the pandemic and like seeing all of that. Exactly. Like I've never expected my journey to medicine to be like this, but I'm grateful that it was like this. It must have been like really eye-opening with all the experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then even seeing how you can help people in your community and knowing like not everyone receives the same information or more education is needed for certain communities. Exactly. And you're, you're like the best person for that. Thank you, Rosa. I'm just trying. I'm trying. I just want to use like the gift God gave me because I feel like he wants me to help. And I feel like you have the same gift. I see you like very caring and helpful. And we always want to be that advocate, not just for ourselves, but for people who have the same struggles as us. And just hearing how you had to push yourself to go like beyond BayPal, like outside sources, Khan Academy, mm-hmm. other schools. And like you yeah. can't really rely on your family members because there's no one going the same path as you like you're the first basically yeah like for, figuring out for yourself oh that's a lot it is but i always think to myself that there's other people that have to go through this and if you see somebody in a higher position than you and who looks like you who is a minority 
you always think to yourself like they probably went through the same struggles that I did so I have to make it work you know if I really want to I have to make it work and I feel like for us we shouldn't make excuses based on the opportunity the opportunities that we don't have or the outlets that we don't have we have to you know connect to one another and find a way to get those same opportunities and if we have to fight a little harder we just got to fight a little harder to get those opportunities and show that we're hungry for it we always have to go the extra mile and push yes yeah you have to the pre-med pursuit for the most part I think my family was definitely supportive it was just hard for them like I told you because they didn't know what the pre-med um journey entails um they didn't know how long it was they think that the minute you get your bachelor's you get a job right away but you kind of still have to keep getting your experiences then take your MCAT then apply to medical school then you're in medical school then you have to do your whether it's the didactic year and you still have to get your academics in, then your rotations, there's the residencies, there's so much more. So I think for them, they were just afraid. And some of my family members, I felt like they doubted me because they're like, do you really want to do this? You know, you it's a long route. And I was like, I have a passion for it. I'm not scared. I know there's obstacles, but I know I can get through it, you know? So I'd rather start now strong than regret the decisions that I made later on. So it was hard at first. Because I feel like that's why I did pre-med, pre um, pre-PA, just to kind of finish school early. But I was like, I know I want to be a doctor. So I have, you know, if I have to do the longer route, I will. And I won't let anyone kind of deter me for that. But they were very supportive. Any concerns that I had or if I felt overwhelmed, the first person that I would always call was like always my dad. He was always there, supportive, regardless of the time or day. And he kind of knew what I was going through. And he understands the vigor of the academics, the stress that it entails. And he also knew, like, you know, studying is very important, but you have to take time for yourself. You don't want to burn yourself out too early because the field itself, burnout is one of the biggest issues that a lot of new physicians, new um, DOs, MDs, even OTs and PTs or nurses have to face is burnout. The field itself is so complex. So you kind of have to take it with a good enough endurance, stamina to keep pushing through and not overwork, your, not overwork yourself earlier on. So I think that was the greatest lesson he taught me because I just wanted to be the best. And I still feel like I'm striving to be the best that I am rather than be the best in everyone else's eyes, which is close to impossible. So I like that he just put in perspective and said, you're doing the best you can. Well, I love that support. It sounds like, like you always talk about your dad in school, and he just sounds like a great guy. He is. I wish everyone can meet him. Of course, we, you know, little things can happen, and we go back and forth. But, you know, he is a reasonable guy because he's been through a lot in his life. So I get it. You know, growing up in Ghana is very different than growing up here. So you know that when you're here in the States, you're here because you want more opportunities. You're here because you want a better life for your kids and family. So that was the goal for him. And that's the goal for myself and my kids, you know? So like, you decided to be a doctor on your own. There wasn't no like parental influence on that. Because you know how no. parents are like, do better, go higher, be a doctor. Yeah. 
Exactly. Like, I'll be honest, you guys, and I put my right hand up. Never in my life did my parents say, you have to be a doctor. Ever. If anything, they my dad initially wanted me to be a nurse because he felt like the schooling was a lot shorter, was a lot quicker, and he felt like I'll be done with it super quick. So even being a PA was a little too much. So now I was going to be a doctor. He was like, wow, you know, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. So none of them said to be a doctor. If anything, they wanted me to get something that specifically, you know, was in medicine, paid a good amount, and I was able to enjoy it and didn't have to stress over it. Because um, I guess with TV and with talking to other uncles and aunties that they know or friends who have kids in medical school who are doctors and lawyers or, you know, just the top in their field in business. They said how overwhelming they felt, how exhausting it was, and they just felt like it was too much. But that's because you, if you don't, if you, I feel like personally, you know yourself, you know what you're willing to put yourself through and you know what you're willing not to do. So I can't base my experience on somebody else's. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. That's funny that he pushed you to be a, a nurse, and then you're like a doctor, and he's and he understands like it's not an easy road. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just love yeah. how you're so like self motivated, and you're pushing yourself, and like that's you have motivation. So like I feel like you have to be, you have to self motivate yourself because it's going to be a point where you're halfway through that goal, and then if you don't have the self motivation, you're going to be like, you know what, never mind, and then you just quit, and you. We don't know how long we're going to live, so you don't want to waste time doing something you do not have the passion for. This is not the time to be wasting time. What challenges, if any, have you faced navigating the field of medicine as a woman of color, or as an African woman, or as a Black woman, however you identify? I would say the challenges I faced were first and foremost, number one was like representation and then resources. So when I say about representation, I didn't really see a lot of African-Americans, at least with my volunteer opportunities, shadowing and then working in the lab. I didn't really see that many African-American doctors. Um, if I, and then the only ones that I saw was maybe like a few African-American nurses, but I didn't want to be a physician. So I would talk to some of the doctors and they said, yeah, it's true. In this area, we don't see a lot of African-Americans. Well, I was shadowing my, uh, one of the oncologists and she said the same thing. She said, maybe the most diverse we have is maybe one resident who's, I believe she was from New Delhi, India. And she said, we really don't have a lot of African-Americans here, but she said it's not because they don't want to be in the field. She said that they face a lot more obstacles, whether it's, for example, what I said, representation and resources. A lot of African-Americans lack the research. In the sense, it could be whether our school, whether we have to fight for these opportunities, the majority of us have to. You kind of, you can't just be good. You have to be excellent. I feel like in our setting, that's the only way we can stand out. And people expect us to do less. They expect us to just, literally, they expect us to pass and move on because they think that that's the best we can achieve. And I think everyone should just set their own boundaries and their own limits and know that they can go farther. So with me, I had to make those calls to different hospitals. I had to make the calls to different schools. I had to ask the people that I was shadowing in those places that I was working, hey, do you know of any programs I can do, any research programs that I can apply to? Hey, can you write me a recommendation for this program? And that's kind of how I got my foot in the door. Um, I wouldn't say that I, BAPAP 
had great professors and they were amazing. At least for me, the science courses were very intense and it showed when I went on to my on-site or like the externships in a sense you can say. It was amazing because I can see how the labs that we did in class applied in the medical field. So with that, it just kind of pushed me and said that, you know, even though Baypad didn't have that many connections, they did give us the foundation, at least in my experience. So with the resource that I was lacking, I did a lot more research, called a lot of schools and hospitals and asked, hey, how can I get the experience? And then when I got the experience, I used those experiences to apply for more research programs for the summer. And then when I did the summer internship for the travelers programs, that's when I got um, the more, I guess you could say like the, represent the representation that I needed because the program was surfaced around selecting minority students specifically. So they wanted more minorities in medicine. So they would have guest speakers, which all of them were minorities, I think besides one. But all of them were either Hispanic, Indian, African-American. One was like an African-American transplant surgeon. He talked about his journey growing up in New York, going to different schools, how he had to fight for his spot. And then we had this Hispanic woman. She talked about how women really have to fight for their position at the table because most of the time we don't, we're not really great with when it comes to negotiating for acknowledging our skills and we just settle. While you see the male counterpart, they won't fight for the negotiation, asking for a higher, let's say, salary, and they will get it. Or if there was a hard contract surgery, most likely they will get it. So it was those little things that I was like, okay, write this down, acknowledge it. But I feel like for me, those are more um, the limitations and obstacles that I face. And I'm grateful that I face them because I have something to talk about, something to write about. And I can see my journey. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Seeing your journey and seeing how you navigated that. Uh -huh. And a lot of um, self-advocacy that you had to do for yourself, which is amazing. You have to. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if you, let's say, if I didn't really want it or I didn't really like the field, I would have gave up a long time ago. It really shows that how I really wanted it. I really want to be a physician and I said, I'm not going to stop the obstacles that are in my way to feed my purpose. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know what? Yes, it's hard. And I know it's hard for other people. I don't know how hard it is for everyone else because our lifestyles are very different. Mm -hmm. But the process I knew was going to be hard. So some parts where I was like, this feels a little too hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it shouldn't it should feel impossible. Right. It can be hard, but it shouldn't feel impossible. You know, and I was like, how do we make this possible? How do we make it? Make sure I get closer and closer and closer and closer to where I can just enter that door and finally be the position. It's gonna take time, but I know that I just gotta keep pushing through. I'm so excited. You're so determined. It's like that's what makes a, a great doctor. It's so exciting. Thanks. Like this, I'm not gonna lie, this moment where I'm like, do I really want this? Can I really do this? Like, I feel like everyone has those moments of second thoughts mm -hmm. and just, what is it called, like, pastor, uh, imposter? Imposter syndrome. Yeah, where you feel like you're not supposed to be in this position in life. You feel like, why did they choose me? This, why me? Mm -hmm. And I think everyone has that moment of, they feel like they're not, they're not worthy in a sense. When they are, 
but it's just our own insecurities that we kind of have to work through and get over and push ourselves. Right. And like the more you enter spaces where you see people who look like you and other people of color, the more motivating I feel it is. Mm-hmm. And you don't feel alone. Like once exactly. you start talking to them, you don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. There was this one pathologist that I met. And I was just talking to her. She was so amazing. She was like, yeah, and I also grew up in Jamaica, Queens. I'm like, you grew up in Queens? And it was just amazing because she she was at Holyoke, and she was super nice. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. She's telling me about schools. And she's like, hey, if you're going to apply, be very cautious. This is schools that they, this is the type of students that they're looking for when they're applying. She talked about her journey. She said how tough it was just, just for her to apply. And she had to fight her own insecurities because, she wanted to help her family. At the same time, she knew that she wanted to go away for school. And it was like the balance between like whether I stay home, whether I go to the school. And then she was also an African-American woman in medicine. So I said, how was that? She was like, you still have to fight for your spot. She was like, even though you get the spot, you still have to fight for your spot. You know, you still got to be active at the table, active at the conferences. You, you got to be active. Mm-hmm. You got to be spoken. And when I tell you she was smart, she is smart. But of course, it's coming from just a recent graduate compared to a doctor. Of course, she knows a lot more than everything she says to me. is like amazing. Mm-hmm. But the way she spoke was just so, just, it was just so easy to understand. But at the same time, the, complex, the complexity she was talking about, um, how you grade cells, the rapid, um, what did she say? The rapid staining when you get a specimen from the OR. Mm-hmm. And then you have to see if they got the margins right for malignant cells. It was just, it was amazing to see her and the confidence. She was like, over time, it just, it just gets easy for you. And I was like, I hope it does. And she was like, it will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was just amazing. Yeah, I love the encouragement and building each other up. There's such a comfort mm-hmm. in that, too. Being able yes. to talk to another minority in your field and the comfort. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yay, things are looking up. It's gonna... Wait. We're gonna get to that point where we're all in our fields and we are. I just can't, oh, I can't wait because yeah. not that like I don't want to enjoy the journey. I do want to enjoy the journey, but I just can't wait for that moment where I can look back and say, Ugh. "Like at least I'll make it to a, a we'll, we'll make it to another milestone mm-hmm. where we, at least we can breathe a lot easier." I feel right. No, yeah. And finally, here's Heather's take on women's health and advocating for your own health concerns. I would say with women's health, it's more of, I would say like just fighting for women's health. Because I see that a lot of women, when they come in, they have to, in a sense, advocate for themselves that their symptoms are severe enough. You know, if you're telling me you're having some type of chest irritation where you're really having chest pain, it's up to you, and of course, like, I want to make sure that I'm acknowledging your symptoms. So if a guy, a male comes to me and says that he's having chest pain, and then a woman comes to me and she's having chest pain, they, they should still be evaluated as severe as their cases are brought to us. I feel like women's health focuses more on the importance of their symptoms. Okay, and also I think like gynecological health is important because a lot of cultures kind of deter the young female community from them. They don't really talk about vaginal health. They don't really talk about 
this to homeless people may deal with. They don't really talk about um, young women and what sex really means. You know, they always deter from that. They don't want no one to talk about it. They don't want to touch it. And I think in those moments, we really have to ground it. Because when you don't talk to your child about a certain situation, I guarantee, I guarantee you they're going to learn from either the streets, the internet, or their friends. And that's not the best place for them to learn it, okay? So I want to make sure that women have the confidence to speak on their issues and, of course, their health. And specifically, that's why I like cardiovascular from the CT surgery department because they had a whole seminar about cardiovascular disease in men and women and how women are treated differently or women are treated in a less severe manner than how if the male is brought to the table with the same complaints. So they want to treat them because women, in a sense, when it comes to like cardiovascular symptoms or they like their chest pain or they have a stroke, their view is just completely different. They're not taken serious or their symptoms are more what they call like atypical, atypical symptoms. That the symptoms are not going to match exactly from a male, but they have to be addressed. And I work with this physician assistant at CMD, and she always advocates for that. She's like, I don't care what woman comes in, I'm going to treat them the same way that I would want to be treated. And that's to the best of my abilities. I don't want to ignore anything that comes through the door. Because she feels like, um, Women are definitely neglect- neglected, and their issues are not addressed when they come in. You know, because I feel like the pain tolerance and we're expected to be shown all the time. So I just want to make sure when it comes to women's health, first of all, their symptoms are addressed, and then gynecological health is addressed, and cardiovascular health is also addressed. Yeah, that is so very important. The health disparities amongst men and women uh-huh. and then within women you have minority women and the majority of, of white women even more dispares- disparities there uh-huh. and like there are so many different factors that result in deteriorated health conditions and like gender gender role issues and racial discrimination sexism that you were talking about it does and i guess I don't want, for example, if my mother or if my grandmother or if my younger sister or my best friend goes in telling the provider that they're having this severe case and they brush it off and says that a woman is exaggerating her symptoms just to get better care is a problem that we have in the healthcare system, you know? And it's been going away all the time and people kind of brush it off. But once we're seeing these deaths, it's a problem as well. And we see a lot of African-American mothers die during birth. And it's a scary thing to see it all the time. I think there was a YouTuber, I forgot her name, but they said she died while giving birth. And then there's another issue I have to talk about. Mm-hmm. So OB-GYN is an amazing field. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say that only women have to be in the field, men can be in the field too. But I would like to see a lot more women address those issues and highlight it. Even at this point, I think like research studies that they can post on PubMed or uh, call to action programs. But then again, that's what I'm hoping to do in medical school as well. Like OB guy is a great field too, so that's something I don't want to just ignore. I've never had experience with rotation in there or shadow there yet. So that's something I want to look into as well. Um, because I, those that are dying are people like me. So if I can be in a position to protect them, I want to as well. And I want to know more about the field itself. I will keep saying 
why are African Americans dying during childbirth? But like, I don't think people understand the, the severity of it. Mothers are dying while giving birth to their own child. It's almost like two patients go into a room and only one or none comes out. And we need to adjust that in every setting possible. It is crazy, and I've seen that more in the media. I know you talked about there is a huge stigma with gynecologists and sex health. Do you believe that's a cultural thing or a societal thing? I think it's cultural, just because a lot of people don't want to, depending on their culture, whether it could be like Muslim, Islamic, um, even more of like Pentecostal, Christianity too, you got to be very cautious. And I guess in the way that they speak of um, gynecological health, because people don't want to be seen as obscene or vulgar when they talk about it. But my thing is, why is talking about, you know, vaginal health vulgar? It is my body. I need to address this. I want to talk about this. I want to have more education about it. And when you kind of make it to seem that when a woman talks about her, you know, her vaginal health or her, what's going on with her, her GU health, that's what we'll call it, it's a problem. But when we have all these other outlets that are over-sexualizing female, that's okay. So it's almost like and that, when you over-sexualize a female, whether in the streets or even media, that's what I think that's what's societal. Our culture is saying that women should be pure, women should not talk about these things, not even do these things. But then how can a woman know what's going on with herself specifically? I think for me, it was just more of my confidence and do my own research and talking to people in the field that I got more insight because I could tell based on the experiences I had whether it was shadowing or like working right now that from the white community they have no problem whatsoever talking about vaginal health at all or their urinary health at all. They have no problem. When they come in they'll tell you what's wrong with them. They'll tell you the color, what's going on, whether they're urinating, pattern change, whether their menstrual cycle is late. But when a minority comes in the office they're very cautious with their words. They don't even know how to explain what is going on. So I have to ask a little bit more questions. I'm like, well, what color is the discharge? How many days? Any sexual partners in the past? Is this your first pregnancy? Is this your second pregnancy? Are they all full term? Little things like that. I can see the difference on how each from whites and blacks present their case. So you can tell that while well, some people have a more, I would say, confidence in experience expressing their symptoms. Some don't, and it could be because they don't know much about their own, you know, urinary health compared to school, or it's cultural to where they're not allowed to really talk about this out in the open. It's seen as unladylike. Right, right. So it, might, it sounds like there's more shame in minority mm-hmm. women. Exactly. At least that's my ex- I don't know if experience is different, but this is what I'm seeing so far on how GU health is handled. How do you go about educating women to improve their health status and their just increasing their knowledge? Well, the first thing I would say is like you can Google up some books that you can look into for women's health, and also I would say I wouldn't say the internet is a bad place, but it can be a decent place as well. And for example, taking the classes too. If you have an anatomy class, take the anatomy class to know what your body even looks like. I'm not saying go to the internet to just see what your body looks like, but just know what does the vagina look like or what specifically are you looking for. All the color discharges are normal compared to what's normal. 
you need to normalize these topics for people to kind of feel comfortable acknowledging that. And then for the women's health, I do a lot of reading. So a lot of the providers will give us like, uh, they'll print out some sheets for us to read and I'll get for the job that I have because I'll talk to the provider as well. I'm like, this person came, came here with XYZ. Why are we doing this? And they're like, you know what? Let's also check for sexually tra- transmitted disease. You know, they said they're not sexually active, but let's check as well. And they will describe it because it's different from the discharge that we should acknowledge. They talk about our health. And even this past year, I just started going on probiotics to help my, not just my immune health, but my urinary health as well. And that was just from talking to providers and reading more about women's health online. Because I heard about it, but I was like, what is it really doing for your body? And, you know, it's good to have actual good bacteria, that's what it is, in your body to replenish what is lost and to make sure that you're kind of coating your linings inside. So I recommend people to do their own research on women's health. And also, for example, when I was younger, I would always ask my primary care physician, I'm like, oh, this is not right with me. What should I do? And she'll tell me. Because if I'm a 12, 13-year-old girl, it's hard for me to only rely on the internet. If I have... if I am grateful enough to have a physician that can follow me. I would recommend people to ask their physician, ask your PCP, ask your OBGYN, ask, ask them. They have gone to school for a long period of time, training and experience, and I would trust a physician that I'm meeting compared to the internet that has so many different outlets, you know? So that's another thing that I think people can look out for. Just ask your physician. Because that's their job and they're there to answer your questions. But also remembering that it's for your own benefit and it's your body. You only have one, so really take care of it. Mm-hmm. And if something doesn't feel right or doesn't sit right with you, go in after a physician and see what he or she says, you know? And if you don't feel comfortable going to your, you know, physician, you can talk to your mom. It's not how your relationship is with your mom or your aunt. But just know it's best to seek medical attention if you feel like this is something like this is not good for you, it's not normal, it's something serious. So when it comes to women's health, be honest. Any question you have, ask. Don't act like any question is too silly, too dumb, too vulgar. It's your body. You can talk about it. That's true. I think that really has to be heard. So like maybe there's a feeling that the physician is judging you like when you ask they ask these personal questions it's like a judgment especially if it's something you've never talked about before yes what is something you want everyone to know about you like all the listeners anything what what's the message you're leaving us today i guess i just want everyone to know that heather is just another person just like you who wants to be great in this world, who wants to do great, and I believe everyone else can do great. And I am an approachable person, so if you see me or you want to like email, text me or anything, I'm cool with that. And I just want people to know that I've been through a lot of my life, and I guarantee you guys have been through a lot of your life, but just know that there's so much more than what society puts out for us, you know? So just make sure you're pushing yourself, but not to the point where you feel like you want to give up, Push yourself enough, find time for yourself, just like how me and Mazda were talking earlier about, you know, self-care. Find those moments to check in and make sure you have a few days of self-reflection and good people that are with you to help guide you and support you. Because even though you may feel like you're the strongest person, 
listen, I feel like I'm the strongest person on this world too, but I know that I need those moments. Find someone to just kind of have those moments to talk to, calm when you're stressed out, and know how to vent, vent help, help, you know, in a healthy manner. So, if there's anything I want to leave you guys with, it's just keep doing what you're doing, whatever you're doing, you're doing great. And if you don't have the one to support you, I'm there to support you guys. And I just want everyone to do great, you know. Even my enemies, so I still want them to do great. You know, and don't let other people hog you down or make you feel messed up. Oh, that is so wonderful. I'm like all smiley right now. <laughs> that was a good I message. I just can't be motivated. I just, I just can't be motivated because I'm like, dude, sometimes you have to hype yourself up. <laughs> <laughs> Keep loving yourself and keep taking care of yourself. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this COVID file episode two. Hope you liked what you heard and I hope to catch you in the next Americanized episode as well as the next COVID files episode. New episodes coming out every other week. All original music produced by Stubborn Saul. That's S-T-B-R-N-S-A-L. Be sure to catch him on all music listening platforms and stay tuned for new music. Be well and take care.